Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. So since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And friends, here is what really made my heart sing extremely late on, on Friday night. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And friends, I know that I was not the only one over the last few weeks to to suffer pain and to to experience loss and, and have struggles of various kinds. And so this sermon is really about how the Lord worked in my heart through this passage, and I pray that the Lord uses it to do a work in your heart as well. But I'm actually going to be approaching this sermon and actually approaching this passage in in somewhat of an odd way this morning. You see, God didn't just use this passage here in Hebrews to speak to my heart on Friday night, but He also used a passage in Isaiah, of all places, as well. And so I want to begin this morning by looking at an experience that Isaiah had before the throne of God as he is confronted with the holiness of God. But before we go any further, let us pray for the Spirit to lead our time together. Lord, what a wonderful morning this is. Lord, despite the difficulties that, Lord, all of us have experienced or are experiencing in one way or another, despite all the the craziness that is going on in the world, this is a glorious morning because this is a morning in which you reign supreme. So God, I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, God, that you just help remove any distractions away from our minds this morning. God, if we have prayed so many times before, the enemy doesn't want us to pay attention to your word. And so, God, I just pray that you protect us from that. And Lord, I pray that it is not me, Lord, that is delivering this message ultimately, God, but that it is you, that it's your spirit that uses this message to to speak into our hearts. Lord, guide our time together this morning. I ask this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. If you were in the Wilson community group several months ago, maybe maybe a year ago, it's been it's been a while. Some of uh, this sermon may sound somewhat familiar to you because in that group we went through uh, theologian R. C. Sproul's teaching on the holiness of God. Now, many of you already know that there's really no other theologian that has had more of an impact on me than R. C. Sproul. I sometimes affectionately call him my uh, my uh, spiritual grandfather. And uh, Sproul was an absolutely brilliant man, but it was really his teaching on the holiness of God that changed so much of how I understand the, the beauty and the majesty of our Lord. 
And it was, it was kind of like a key that God used to open my eyes, to open the eyes of my heart in, in many different ways. And so I want to take you to the passage that God through Sproul used to deepen my awareness of His holiness, the passage in Isaiah chapter 6. And you, you're probably thinking at this point, what, what in the world? Does Isaiah 6 and God's holiness have anything to do with Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16? What does the the call of Isaiah to be a prophet have anything to do with Jesus, our great high priest? And and you know what? Hey, fair question. That's a fair question. But but I just pray that you bear with me for just a a few minutes because I believe that that at the end, you'll, you'll see the connection too. At least prayerfully, I hope you see the connection too. And so if you have your Bibles with you, take a look at Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. And I believe it's on the screen. We might have that passage. Which again is the account of God calling this man Isaiah to be a prophet, to be his mouthpiece to the people of Israel. Now, I want you all to remember that before we read this particular passage and uh, look at what it says, just know that Isaiah was a godly man. And he was a godly man of good standing in his community. If you were to go out on the street and ask people about Isaiah, they would probably say, yeah, I know Isaiah. Yeah, he's he's a great guy. He's really nice. He's godly. You know, he, he, he obeys the law of God pretty well, you know? He's one of our best. That, that was Isaiah. That was Isaiah. So by all human standards, Isaiah was a good man. But let's take a look at what happened when Isaiah, this, this good, great man, was brought into the throne room of God when he was called to serve him as a prophet. Look at verses 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim. And each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. Now, the purpose of this sermon is not to get into every single detail of Isaiah 6, but as Isaiah is swept up into this vision of heaven, he sees God in all of His regal majesty. And you see the the train of His robe was, was filling the room, and He was seated high and lifted up. He was sitting in His rightful place above all of His creation on His throne from which He sovereignly rules. And there's no king, there's no person of royalty from any other kingdom or empire that could come close to matching the the splendor and the regality of what Isaiah saw as he looked upon the king of kings. And then there were the angelic beings, the the seraphim, who were flying around the throne and they they proclaimed this to one another in verse 3. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Now, some of you know, when the Bible wants to really emphasize something, when it wants to stress something, wants to make sure that you know that what is being said is important, it uses repetition. One of the best examples, one of the easiest examples of this is when Jesus would often say, truly, truly, I say to you, right? 
So anytime he said, truly, truly, he's using that repetition to say, hey, pay attention. Because what I'm about to say is the most important thing that you're, you've ever heard in your life. Now, friends, I believe I've preached on this before a little while ago, but there are many characteristics of God, right? He is just, He is good, He is righteous, He is love, He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and, and so on and so forth. But there is only one characteristic of God that is repeated not, not just twice, but that is repeated three times. This passage in Isaiah, by repeating thrice that God is holy, is telling us that if we want to understand God, if we want to truly know Him as He is, then there is nothing more important for us to understand than His holiness. His holiness. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, Holiness in angels and saints is just but a quality. But in God it is His essence. Now, Sproul and other theologians have pointed out that there is a primary and secondary meaning to the word holy. And the secondary meaning is, is really just purity, right? God is perfectly pure. He is not tainted or marred by any sin whatsoever. He is morally perfect. In fact, all morality actually flows from His holiness, and not only that, but His holiness flows into His other attributes. Stephen Charnock, the Puritan again, said that, that His holiness is, is kind of what animates all of His other attributes. His justice is a holy, perfect justice. His righteousness is a holy and perfect righteousness. His love is a holy and perfect love. And so His holiness describes the perfection of His whole being. But the primary meaning of holy means set apart. God is transcendent, meaning that He is higher. He is greater. He is more glorious by an infinite measure than anything in creation. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And friends, you could search all of creation. You could search the entire earth and into the cosmos for eternity and find nothing and no one like our God. The greatest minds that this world has ever produced, the greatest theologians that have ever come out of the church, the kindest and most loving people that have ever lived cannot hold a candle to our God, who is set apart, who is transcendent and holy. And we could, we could sit and think about nothing else for the rest of our lives but the holiness of God and still not even come close to fully understanding it. He is holy, holy, holy. The radiating splendor of His holiness cannot be confined. His shining glory fills every inch of heaven and it floods the earth. There's no place that exists in which the glory of God does not permeate. And the glory of God's holiness is so intense that even these, these angelic beings, the seraphim, who, by the way, are sinless, are forced to cover their face and cover their feet. As majestic as these creatures were and are, because of the intense holiness of God, they could not look upon His face. 
So they covered their eyes. God is so holy that these creatures wanted to cover their creatureliness. And so they covered their feet. So friends, when, when we think of God, we are doing ourselves a disservice if we do not think of His holiness. If we do not know of the holiness of God, then we do not know of God. Sinclair Ferguson says this, God's holiness means He is separate from sin. Totally separate from sin. But holiness in God also means wholeness. God's holiness is His Godness. It is His being God in all that it means for Him to be God. To meet God in His holiness, therefore, is to be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that He is God and not man. And friends, how, how often in, in our culture and in sometimes, sadly, in our churches, do we want God to be anything but holy? Right? And we want God to, to look like us and to, to, to be like us. And we don't want a God that is holy and transcendent and so, so far above us. And we want, we want a God that, that we can control. We want a God that, that, that looks and moves and acts like we do. Because that's a, that's a comfortable God. But that's not our God. Our God is holy, holy, holy. So now let us look at what happened to Isaiah as he set his eyes upon this holy God. Verse 4 and 5 of Isaiah 6 say this, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, listen to what he says, what Isaiah says, when he looks upon this holy God, he says, Woe is me! Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This man, who you remember, was a good man in good standing amongst his peers, when confronted with the thrice holy God, can say nothing except to cry out a curse on himself. Woe is me! And friends, I, I do not want you to miss the depth of despair that Isaiah is feeling here. Because a more accurate translation of the I am lost is actually I am unmade. I am undone. I am unraveled to the core of who I am. When confronted with the reality of God's holiness, Isaiah is broken. And he is broken by his sinfulness. And Isaiah is made acutely aware that he has unclean, sinful lips. But friends, I don't, I don't think Isaiah simply feels bad here because he has said a few you know, cuss words right in his life. Or, or simply talked poorly about somebody behind their back. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Actually, in fact, that's not what he's talking about when he says that I have unclean lips. No, what he is saying is much more significant than that. Jesus tells, tells us in Matthew 12 that what comes out of the mouth flows from what? The heart. And so Isaiah is making a statement here, not just about his, his mouth and his choice of words. He is making a statement here about his heart. 
He's realizing that, that filth lies within him. And as this sinful creature is brought before the throne of God, he is forced to see the truth of who he is. And when that happens, he is undone. He is unmade. He believes himself to be utterly lost. Such is the comparison between God's holiness and man's sin. Friends, I hope you recognize that that is what Isaiah deserved. As he stood in front of his maker, this sinner, this man with a filthy heart, deserved everything that he felt. He deserved to be unmade. He deserved to be unraveled, to fall into pieces and just be, just be blown away by the wrath of God. A sinful man has no place in the presence of the perfect and thrice holy king. Do you understand that? Do you really understand that? It is such an uncomfortable truth, right? It is such a truth that, that, that we don't like to speak of it much in the church. But friends, you've got to know it. You have to know it. And you have to know it because, friend, you're, you're a sinner too. Just like me. Just like me. And when we approach God, when we go before Him, what we deserve is to be unmade. We deserve to be lost, to be shattered to pieces. We, like Isaiah, are a people of unclean lips, living amongst a people of unclean lips. And God would be absolutely just to leave us saying, Woe is me. We deserve the punishment of sinners, which 2 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us clearly is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord in the glory of His might. That's what we deserve. Now, I'm sure at this point you may be very confused on how God used all of this to encourage my heart on Friday night. If anything, you may be thinking, why didn't this just make you feel worse and, and make you feel more terrible about yourself and the situation that you found yourself in? And how could thinking of God's holiness lead to comfort and joy? Well, brothers and sisters, the answer lies in what happened next to Isaiah. Because God did not give him what he deserved. Did you hear that? God did not give Isaiah what he deserved. Verse 6 and 7 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for, paid for, gone. Friends, God did not leave Isaiah broken and undone. What is more, God did not give Isaiah the punishment for his sin that he rightly deserved. He did not leave Isaiah wallowing on the ground, just cursing himself, but through his servant, the seraphim, he immediately goes to Isaiah and he cleanses him and he forgives him of his sin. And what do you think Isaiah felt in that moment? Man, to have your entire life come crumbling down around you as you're brought face to face with the reality of God's holiness and the reality of your depravity. But then to have the Holy One, 
make you clean and tell you that your sins, all of those things that made you unworthy to enter into the presence of God, they've been forgiven. How do you think he felt? Man. Isaiah came to the throne of God, and he, I believe that he, he thought that he was going to be going to a throne of judgment and condemnation. But to his immense relief and comfort, it was a throne of grace that he found. And after this experience in the throne room of God, after God cleansed him and forgave him of his sins and called him to be a prophet, Isaiah writes in chapter 57, verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says this, I dwell in the high and holy place. And, and listen close, believer. Listen close to all of you who, who feel broken and unmade by whatever difficulty that you're going through. Listen close to this. I dwell in the high and holy place and also, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite, the repentant. He is in the high and holy places and he is also with the lowly. How amazing is that? How wonderful is that? And so, brothers and sisters, are you beginning to see why all of this was an encouragement to my heart? This experience of Isaiah was a foreshadowing, friends, of the gospel. Now go next to Hebrews chapter 4. And remember that, that God is holy, right? God is holy. He is so holy that He would have been absolutely just in leaving mankind in their broken and sinful state. Right? He would have been perfectly just in remaining in the heavenly places, seated upon His throne, pronouncing righteous judgment on all of us, giving us precisely what we deserve. But friends, that same holy God, whose train of His robe filled the entire throne room, who is thrice holy, who commands the worship of the seraphim and the angels, that same God who is seated high and lifted up, stood up, He stood up from His throne and He came down and He humbled Himself. The holy God. And He took on flesh also that he could become, as verse 15 of Hebrews 4 says, our great high priest. How incredible. If you flip over to chapter 5 of Hebrews, just briefly, you will see in the opening chapters that the purpose of a high priest was to represent man to God. To go before him and offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. And our great high priest did just that. But unlike the high priest of the Old Testament and of the Old Covenant, the sacrifice that Jesus offered wasn't the blood of an animal that could only cover the sins of God's people temporarily. But the sacrifice that our high priest offered was perfect. It was a sacrifice that was holy, holy, holy. It was a sacrifice so perfect so separated from sin that it could forgive the sins of His people perfectly and completely and not just temporarily, but for eternity. 
Our great high priest, our advocate before God the Father, the the thrice holy God that caused Isaiah to feel unraveled, Christ Jesus, gave himself for us so that we could be saved, as Hebrews 7 says, to the uttermost. To the uttermost. Friends, you see why the holiness of God matters so much here. It is the holiness of God that gives Jesus' sacrifice its true weight and significance. It is in the light of His holiness that we can see the grand scope of His love and mercy. And we recognize that the same God in Isaiah 6 is the same God that was mocked and beaten tortured, spat upon, and hung to die on a cross as a criminal. The more we recognize that that is the same God that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 of Isaiah, the more we can stand in utter amazement that he did all of that for a people of unclean lips. That makes the opening lines to Amazing Grace a little more weighty, doesn't it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I saved a wretch like me. But again, skipping ahead a little bit in Hebrews to chapter 5, verse 2, we also see that the job of the high priest was to deal gently with God's people, to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Words which I believe can describe us more often than we would like to admit. But the high priest was able to do this because he himself was beset with weakness, it says. A more accurate translation of that would be clad in weakness, kind of like a knight is clad in his armor. A high priest was clad in his own weakness. Well, friends, yet again, here is where our great high priest, Jesus, is a superior high priest. Because while the old covenant high priest was able to sympathize with the people and deal gently with him because he himself was also weak, his weakness led him to sin. And before he could represent the people of God, before God himself, the priest had to first offer a sacrifice for his own sins. That's not so with our great high priest. Now going back to chapter 4, verse 15, it tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Friends, I hope you feel the magnitude of that sentence. Just like the high priest of the old covenant, the great high priest Jesus is able to sympathize with us, meaning that he is able to deal harshly, Critically, he's able to deal gently with us because he knows what it is like to feel tempted. He knows what it is like to be tried and to suffer. And yet without sin. Friends, I I don't know about you, but one of the sweetest benefits of putting my trust in Christ, one of the sweetest benefits of my salvation is that he now deals gently and sympathetic with me. I need that so much. There's so many times where I I feel broken. Where I feel that if there's just one more thing, I'm just going to fall into pieces. And we have a high priest who knows that. 
And so he deals gently with me. I want you to see how verse 15 actually puts it. Look at verse 15 again. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Do you notice how the preacher of Hebrews phrases this in the negative? It's in the negative. He doesn't say we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. But it uses the negative. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And I believe the reason is because we can sometimes, when we think of the holiness of God, believe that because He is so much higher, that he is, that because He is so much more transcendent than we are, that He is just too high above us to be able to sympathize with us. I think the preacher knows that that can sometimes be a temptation for us to think that God doesn't care about our problems. God doesn't, God doesn't can't look at the situations that we are in and sympathize with us because He's just so transcendent. He's too far away from us. But the preacher doesn't want us to think that at all. He can sympathize with us. And He does deal with us lovingly. God couldn't be higher above us, but He also couldn't be any nearer to us than He is. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-5 through 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And friends, because of that sweet reality, because He is our great high priest who deals with us gently, we are then invited by the thrice holy God Himself to enter into His throne room, to come before the throne of Jesus, who now sits high and lifted up. But I want you to now contrast Isaiah 6. I want you to, to take that picture in your mind, the experience that Isaiah had when he first entered into the throne room of God with how the preacher of Hebrews, through Christ Jesus, says that we can now experience going before the throne. Contrast those two pictures. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man. Man. Friends, when we go before the throne of God, if we have put our faith in Jesus, if we have repented from our sin, friends, we don't, we don't find a throne of condemnation. Man, we, don't, we don't find a, a throne of, of judgment and wrath, but we find a throne of grace. For those who believe in Christ, His throne is a source of unmerited favor. That's what grace means. Unmerited favor. A favor that we do not deserve. That's what we find. It is a source of mercy. It is a source of help when we are finding ourselves in the midst of temptation and sin and difficulty. 
And brothers and sisters, the battle that I have been fighting over the last few weeks, sure, it, it, it came from, from real difficulties. They came from, from real problems in my life that are hard. But the reality of the situation is that I was, I was more than anything else, I was fighting temptation. I was fighting temptation. I was fighting the temptation to not trust God with my circumstances. I was fighting the temptation to believe, even without really thinking about it, that there was no greater purpose that God could possibly have for taking these friendships away from me. I was fighting the temptation to not believe God's word, that, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God is good and holy and loving and merciful to His people, and that I can take these things to Him and find peace and comfort in Him. Oh, but praise God that he beckoned me the other night to join him in his throne room. To stand before his throne, not with, with shame or timidity, but with confidence. Because I know he had grace and mercy and help that he was ready to pour into my heart. Brothers and sisters, the very fact that God is holy makes that, that grace and mercy all the more awesome. And I mean awesome, not in a flippant way, but in a way that truly means awe-inspiring. It is awe-inspiring that the God who is holy, holy, holy is now my high priest who deals gently with me because he knows intimately my struggles and pains. And He is the one who calls me to Himself and pours out His grace and mercy on me from His throne. And if you're a believer, then this is your reality too. Even if you're wrestling with sin right now, whatever sin that might be, it doesn't change the nature of that throne. If you are in Christ, then that throne is and always will be a throne of grace. So whatever, whatever your struggle, whatever your temptation, you don't have to meekly, with fear, enter into the presence of God anymore. Rather, you can go in the presence of God. You can approach the throne room of God. Approach the throne of Christ Jesus with confidence. You don't have to be bashful and shy. You don't have to be afraid that you're going to be rejected. You don't have to be afraid that you're, you're going to be turned away or made into objects of God's wrath. But you can be confident that the holy throne of Jesus is going to be your source of grace and mercy. Please pray with me. Lord, I don't even know what to say. God, you are so full of grace. So full of mercy. I'm so thankful for that. You are holy, holy, holy. God, there is none like you. There is none beside you. And Lord, even though we should be undone, 
in your presence. Though we should utter curses upon ourselves. Even though we deserve wrath. You're full of grace and mercy. And so God, I pray that we just remember that. That your Holy Spirit impresses that upon our hearts. So that when we are going through the difficulties of this life, we don't try to deal with it on our own. We don't try to try to hide our, our sins and temptations from you and try to deal with them ourselves. But Lord, that we, that we draw near to you. That we with confidence go to your throne. Lord, you are so good and so loving. Lord, I thank you for your holiness. I thank you for your grace and mercy. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.